Welcome to The Disruption Is Now. Join us on this enlightening journey as we explore how AI is impacting our jobs, careers, lives, and the human experience. Each episode, host Greg Matusky will converse with visionaries and innovators at the forefront of AI, diving into its challenges, opportunities, and impact. So buckle up as we venture into the heart of disruption, and together, let's unfold the future. Hey, welcome to another episode of The Disruption Is Now, where we talk about all things AI. I got to tell you, my holiday season, this is our first shoot of the new season, of the new year, and I got to tell you, my, my holiday was really disrupted this year when news came that the New York Times had waged a lawsuit against OpenAI. And I took probably three days of my holiday just to follow the discussions and the back and forth on Twitter. And I walked away pretty upset thinking that this could be a Napster moment for those of you who don't remember Napster. That was when the recording industry moved on Napster and closed it down. And, and no longer could we download our MP3s of which I had 6,300 for some stupid reason. I felt as if you Allegedly. Needed, uh, <laughs> yeah, for some reason. And so then uh, I figured I had met somebody in my life who I was fascinated with during a recent presentation here in Philadelphia. Doug Panzer is a partner at Caesars and Rivis. It's a 100-year-old law firm that specializes in IP. And what I liked about Doug was he was the first attorney I ever met that I actually agreed with. So that was <laughs> that was quite remarkable. And I cornered him after our sessions. He led a session, which I found very interesting. And I said, what do you think about copyright and open AI? And he said, I don't think it's much to worry about. And I always remembered that. And then he went on to explain, and I thought it was very convincing. So Doug, you live locally, so this is only the second time we've had a guest here in studio. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. It's a great studio. Yeah, actually. thanks. Did, did I get that right about your background? You did. And we had a conversation in advance of this. Help me break down the New York Times suit into elements. What is it really saying? And what does it mean, do you think, moving forward? Well, so I think the second question is a big one that we could talk about for far well, longer let's get into than. That then. Yeah, oh, help so help me frame out because you know, right. I'm just a PR guy. I'm not real smart like an attorney, so you got to help me out. Well, thank you for the credit. I guess I'll take it <laughs> since we're we're on camera here. Um, the simplest explanation is that the New York Times puts out a paper every day with lots of articles, and those articles are its lifeblood. It is suing OpenAI and Microsoft for its involvement with OpenAI, saying that OpenAI's use of the New York Times articles to teach its system is copyright infringement because it is digitizing all of that content, it's teaching its system with that content, and then the output of the system is derived from that content. And this is really important because a lot of people I talk to, even today, don't really understand that process. They think that OpenAI somehow ingested the entire internet verbatim and has the ability now to repeat it at will. But that's not the case at all. Just explain that. Explain the algorithm and what it's really doing. Well, so that's an interesting question. How did the material get into the OpenAI system? So we know that OpenAI, let's, let's back up. In general, OpenAI is going to ingest digital content. It will use natural language processing to understand what that content says. And then the AI itself 
will learn from that and try to be able to have conversations, generate output, answer questions for you. So in some of those systems, we know that you can go out and crawl the web, you can get publicly available information, you can bring that information into the system. One of the questions I have, and this will probably come out in the course of the litigation, is how did the New York Times content get into the OpenAI system? Did they scan every physical newspaper? Did someone have a login to the New York Times website, log in, and then, or you know, programmatically use their credentials to allow the system to log in and download everything? That in and of itself is one of the questions. But the short version is OpenAI has digital versions of thousands of New York Times articles and everything that's in them. And so it created algorithms which predicts when you use ChatGPT or at the API level. It simply predicts what it sees would be the most logical next word or thought that it's seen in billions of training sessions, not just the New York Times, it's something like uh, 300 billion different tokens or words that it's, it's learned on. So when we first met a couple months ago, you said this was fair use. And so I was hoping you could educate me in what is the definition of fair use as, as just to help me as a PR practitioner, because I want to stay on the right side of the law here. Sure. Well, I, I, I think the question will be yet to be determined whether it ultimately is fair use. I think whether it's fair use, it matters what you do with content and how you use it. So let me tell you what fair use is. The Constitution is the source of intellectual property law in this country. I mean, the founders thought it was important enough that it's actually in the Constitution. It didn't even fall to the Bill of Rights or, or any amendments. It's right there to advance the useful arts and sciences. And so to do that, you have the ability under law to confer certain exclusive rights to people who create things. Now, in the instance of a copyright owner, there are certain exclusive rights like making copies, publishing it, and making derivative works from it. Derivative works means I take that work and I use it to make something new. Now, you have sort of this push and pull of that constitutional conferring of uh, intellectual property rights because if it's to promote the useful arts and sciences, if I'm too strict on the rights that I give to the first creator, then how can the next creator say, I've learned something from you and now I'm going to contribute to society? So fair use is a four-factor test, and it says, how am I using this copyrighted work? And if I'm using it in certain ways, and the four factors are, what's the nature of the use? How am I using it? What's the nature of the original work? Um, what is the potential harm to the original creator? And what's the motive? Is there a profit motive or is it a not-for-profit motive? So, so in this case, you have a four-point four test. Where do you think uh, this falls on those four points? Because the first time we spoke, you had said that you believed this was fair use. So what makes you think that this would, the training of the data and the ingestion of the data, which allow to create um, algorithms. Uh, where do you think that falls on the spec on those four points? So I think you, you hit it on the head by splitting it into the training versus the output. I do think that the training itself 
is creating absolutely creating something new. It's advancing. It's advancing technology, and it has the potential to advance knowledge and all kinds of arts and sciences. The training itself does that have a profit motive? I don't know that you could say that the training itself has a profit motive. Now, the training itself is necessary in order to create any output, right? So you could tie that in and say that if I'm selling the output, if I'm licensing use of the system to others so they can get the output and they're paying me for it, that's a profit motive. That's well, commercial. OpenAI, the last estimate I saw was $1.6 billion of revenue. So that's certainly... Uh, revenue. Uh, uh, there's no profit yet. But. And they, yeah, and they've <laughs> certainly turned. Uh, they, they've pivoted for sure. Right, you know, right. they they started out saying that this was all sort of altruistic right, and, from their nonprofit uh, roots. Right now, you know, you got to look at the other side. You've got the New York Times, and the New York Times, their revenue stream is these articles. It is these con this content. It is people coming to them for knowledge, not just the first time. But if I want reprints, if I want access to that to study from it later, would I print or would I pay the New York Times? And am I now not going to pay the New York Times for access to historical content because I can get it or a summary of it from OpenAI? Well, so that's where we split the, the training and the output. That's really interesting because is it taking revenue away from the New York Times? And I have used open AI's products probably any the more than anyone you would have met and there's never it takes me away from Google but it would never take me away from the New York Times I mean that's the first thing I look at in the morning I can't get it in a form through open I can't now we'll go into that here in a second but I can't get it in a form that's in context right and it's narrative driven and it has substantiated uh, facts and quotes and what have you so that's my question to you. Is it, is it, uh, does it meet that test? It seems to me at this stage, you would be running a, a high risk to go to OpenAI or ChatGPT and say, tell me what the New York Times said about X, Y, or Z. You don't know if it's going to give you accurate output. You don't know if it's going to create some hallucination or put it together. Well, right now it says that's copyright information, and, I'm, I, and I can't give that to you. Sure. Well, that's and, and right who now. knows how much of this has to do with the negotiations between right. the parties, right. how much of it has to do with the lawsuit itself. Um, you know. It, now, it's interesting in the brief. They listed, let's transition to the issue of memorization, because that's what really hit me hard, is when I read the uh, filing, and there were 100 examples of verbatim articles in that in that brief. Am I saying that right? Is that a brief? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a complaint. Okay, a complaint, which, which were word for word. I mean, and that shocked me, because I have been on top of this as much as I could be for, for three years, and I never thought it could regurgitate in... In, in specifics, word for word. And I always thought that was the real measure of a copyright, if, it w if the words were in the exact order. And these words are in the exact order up to, I would estimate, 350 or 400 words they showed of each article, maybe less, maybe more. But that was most upsetting to me. Now, does that tip you in a different direction on your opinion? I really think that it depends how the system can be used 
and what benefits it confers and the way it can be used. You know, the, um, the tests from the Supreme Court since 1994 and long before that, the history of copyright jurisprudence at the Supreme Court goes back almost 200 years at this point. But since 1994, they've got a pretty good body of copyright law. And the Second Circuit, which is a court of appeals, also has a pretty good body of copyright law. And by the way, that's just above the court where this case sits. And anything that that Second Circuit has Go into has that. Said, Explain that. Because you had brought up a really good point with regard to the Google Books case. Um, explain that, why it's important that it's in the same uh, district. Is that right? The right word? It's same in the same circuit. Circuit. Yeah. I'm sorry. Same circuit. I'm not a lawyer. Well, it was brought in the same district, which eventually ended okay, up in great. that circuit. I think that's really important to understand that case and how it could impact this in the same circuit. Yeah. So th- this is lawyer speak that uh, I think lawyers make too complicated for everyday people. It's pretty simple. Well, do when it as you, you file- did for me in the green room. Yeah. Well, I-, I could even follow it. Here, here's the simplest version, and it doesn't need to be more complicated than this. When you file a lawsuit under federal law, you bring it in a district court. A district court, and there are district courts all over the country, any appeal from that district court goes to a circuit court. Any appeal from the circuit court goes to the Supreme Court. So there's only those three levels, district court, circuit court, Supreme Court. If I am a district court, I am required to follow the precedent of my circuit. And if I'm a circuit court or a district court, I'm required to follow the precedent of the Supreme Court. So now link it to this Google Books case and why that's important. So I think it's critical. Um, The Southern District of New York, where this case was filed, and I believe that's where the Google Books case started before it went to the Second Circuit on appeal. The Southern District of New York is obligated to follow the precedent of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals is the court that gave the ruling on the Google Books case. And the Google Books case ultimately found that it was fair use for Google to digitize the entirety of every book they could get their hands on. Every every copyrighted book, any non-copyrighted book, copyrighted books. In print, out of print, whatever it was. So that would seem to be very analogous. It is very analogous, but it turned on the output. So... You know, but don't let's let's not write off that first part. I mean, the fact that they could digitize all of those books and it didn't become a problem or didn't didn't have the potential to become a problem until they later did something with it. I think that's very closely analogous to ingesting all of this data into the LLM itself. If Google can digitize the books, then why can't OpenAI digitize the content? Now, which were there were a lot of arguments when this case broke on X, right? And there were a lot of arguments that, oh, simply it it was copied many times if it was uh, read by OpenAI because it goes through all the nodes of the internet. And every time that happens, there's a copy. And I was like, oh, I didn't didn't think about that. But you're saying that the Google's books case doesn't uh, precludes all that, that. Well, I don't know if it precludes all of it or not. I mean, if if you want to get me on the Supreme Court, I'll be happy to say that at least that far we're good. But, well, I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah, but, you know, my uh, voice doesn't hold much weight on on those issues. But so I I think that that um, that comes down to the part of the fair use test where we're looking at what is the effect of the what's the commercial impact on the 
creator, the New York Times. And, and I'm saying the New York Times is the creator. Obviously, they're, right. you know, who, right. whoever's providing the content to them under whatever contract. But, it, I mean, I think that to simply digitize these articles, this content, it does nothing to the market for the New York Times, even reprints and access to its archives, right? I mean, just because OpenAI possesses a copy of it, they haven't really done anything to affect the New York Times. Revenue stream. Property, right, right. and revenue right. stream, right. yeah. So when this broke, there were, there were IP attorneys all over X who were saying, this is it. This is the end of OpenAI, that they got them red-handed because they have a hundred of these. And as I shared with you, in the green room, you know, I spent the holidays with my son, and we we went through the we went through the the exercise. We opened the API, which he has access to, and we we tuned it the way they said they had tuned it, or I shouldn't say oh, the New York Times said they tuned it. That others suggested you could tune it, uh, and sure enough, the articles that showed up in the in the brief and the complaint, we could replicate. Other articles that we did the exact same thing for, we put the first line of other articles, we couldn't replicate, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was devastating to me, okay, because I'm like, I never knew that. No one ever told me, right? And the attorneys on X were saying, that's it. That's the smoking gun. That's what they've all been looking for. No one knew this. And, and they found it. You know, if the glove fits, you can't acquit all of a sudden. So... You're saying that that was a quick blush reaction to what they were saying or what? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, we're so early in the process, it would be ridiculous for anybody to make a prediction on the ultimate outcome. Now, that said, I will go on record as making a prediction that there is a 0.0% .0 chance that this is the end of OpenAI. I don't even think that this is going to change OpenAI as much as the file sharing cases changed something like Napster or right. Rockstar. Which, all, all transparency, we once represented LimeWire, which was another file sharing peer-to-peer -peer downloading site, which uh, was an education in and of itself. Sure. I, I'm sure that was a very interesting <laughs> and exciting time. But, you know, I, I think that they're so fundamentally different. In, in the Napster instance, you had a system that was permitting people to make exact, complete copies of something and give them in their entirety to someone else or thousands of someone else's, it was right? a beautiful thing. I mean, now you have this system where it's just not that simple. It's far more analogous to the Google Books case because it's what are we doing with it? How are we advancing technology? How are we benefiting the public? And I think like in that case where the court recognized, one, that you got to be really careful with bright line rules from a court that have the potential to just cut off innovation. And two, there was a real tangible benefit to people being able to go and search digitally to find content scattered across the history of literature. Right. I mean, there's no way that this is the end of OpenAI. Well, it is interesting to me because it, it opens all kinds of questions, big, both broad and little, in, in my realm, in, in re perception and reality. Like, I wonder, OpenAI, now they've gone through the C-suite chaos, which was gut-wrenching, uh, which nearly brought down the company. Uh, uh, if 
when it happened, and now we have this. And I always worry about companies that get pe- pe- uh, pecked at, right? Mm. That they take the little goodwill out there, little goodwill out here, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, big companies that were thinking of building on OpenAI say, oh, we better look around, we better look at Claude, or we better look at uh, other opportunities because we need to diversify our risk here. So that does concern me about the future of OpenAI. They're trying to do a $100 billion raise, and you know, investors uh, got to take that into the calculus that there's this, there's, that there's this issue. So that worries me as a professional. The other thing that worries me is the scaries, the doomers, right? They've infiltrated the mainstream media to such a degree right now that this is bad, that's going to put everyone out of work, that's the end of the civilization as we know it, and what will we do when, when, the, when the, we reach AGI and they can do our jobs better than we do? We can as far as the computing ability of AGI. And I do worry that some of that will rub off um, in ways that are negative moving forward. Do you think that the real answer here is a rewrite of the copyright rules and uh, legislation that's going to be updated for 2023 instead of 1823? I don't think that this requires a fundamental change of copyright law. I think that Um, You know, the copyright law has been amended a number of times, uh, and and every time they amend the law, there are comments from Congress about why they did this and why they did that. And I think, um, you know, we're primarily uh, governed by a 1976 version of the Copyright Act at this point, and it's done a pretty darn good job. I mean, you've uh, you've got the Copyright Act as amended in 1976 controlling two live crews use of Roy Orbison tunes. You've got it controlling Google's digitization of every book in the world. You've got um, it controlling the fight between Oracle and Google over the Java source code. Um, I, I don't think that there's so you a have pretty good faith in that in the body of uh, case law that's in there. I do, and I, I think that the parties here are prepared for that too. You know, to your point, OpenAI is sort of a new kid on the block, but I don't think they're as much of a kid as we as we might think they are. Just because you know, with, with John Mellencamp, you're not as green as you are young, right? I mean, you've got a company here. You've got Sam Altman, who's a, an experienced person. You've got um, Microsoft heavily involved. These are these are titans of the industry fighting with one another. And I think that this is going to come down to setting some guardrails. I don't think this right. is going to be something that... Or Microsoft could just buy the New York Times, which would probably be an easy solution. And then you have... Your, your bad lawyers fight the case so, so that uh, open AI wins. Right? Well, so, I mean, look, if we're, if we're going to go off into this fantasy choose-your-own-adventure, would that even be allowed? I mean, if you're at the point now where we're talking about can AI use copyrighted works without paying for them, and the answer is for one of the biggest companies in the world to pay the complaining party by buying them and saying, screw you, I can do whatever I want. I mean, maybe we are getting close to uh, Skynet coming online. I always thought it would come the other way. This is my thought for months ago, is that in this world, months ago could be years ago. But I thought, here's what's going to happen. Elon Musk is going to sue Microsoft and OpenAI, okay? Okay. Because they they crawled Twitter. And they're going to get into a big fight, and Microsoft's going to settle. 
And the settle is Microsoft's going to buy Twitter because they want the human-generated content. And <laughs> Elon will get a block of Microsoft and a seat on the board. It's a simple little solution, right? Um, I always thought that would be the way it goes because there is this issue of human-generated content and whether there's enough to continue to build these LLMs because everything has been crawled that can be crawled at this point. Some of it's going to be closed. Uh, New York Times is now closed to OpenAI and and where are we going to get this? I think that might be a job of the future where somebody like you, an expert in IP, would stand up in front of a microphone and simply dictate in, in all your knowledge so that it could be used as human-generated content and it, it could train future models. So the future is unknown. And the great part about all these conversations I always end is that regardless, you could always say, could be. It could be right. the end of civilization, or it could be that we cure cancer. But I appreciate you being here today, Doug. It was a really insightful. And I'm telling you, you're the first lawyer I ever met that used uh, Two Live Crew and John Mellencamp in the same <laughs> podcast. So I give you credit there. And uh, we'll see you next time on The Disruption Is Now. This podcast is a production of Gregory FCA. If you enjoyed our discussion today and want to continue exploring the transformative power of AI, please check out more episodes and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm.